The next two weeks are going to be closely um, associated with each other. We're going to kind of pack them together. Today's going to be a foundation day, which means we have a lot of ground to cover. And um, by the way, my name is Blair. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to get started because we have a lot of stuff to do to build a foundation. I think today could be valuable for you, and then we're going to take it into next week as well. But I want to start with a verse that appears to be scandalous. John witnesses this, records this in John chapter 8, verse 3. He says this, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Can you imagine the Jerusalem Inquirer and all the other gossip rags running with this? This would have been frontline news, and you've got to believe that they would have run it because the next verse says she was caught in the act of adultery. And these people were out to utterly humiliate her. So you can bet that they did not give her a chance to get clothed. They were, they were intending to expose her deeds, but they were exposing her to in an effort to humiliate her. And that's why the next verse, or the third verse says, they made her stand in front of everybody. Now, this seems like it's quite scandalous, but the truth of the matter is, it's pretty cut and dry. Everybody in that temple court knows how this is going to play out because they know the scriptures. What you and I refer to as the Old Testament, the Tanakh, they knew that there were rules in there for what happened to a person who did this sort of thing. You would take her outside and you would stone her to death. This was a life and death thing. Everybody knew it and so did she. Not once does she argue for her innocence or plead her case. She knows she's guilty. She knows the outcome that this is going to have. There's not much drama there. The, the real drama can be found in what Jesus is about to do. But for her, really, she's in a place of hopelessness that there's nothing that she can do about it. Have you ever been there? place of hopelessness, you know that place, right, where it looks like no matter what decision you would make, you won't affect the outcome. And really, the only thing that you can do is just wait for things to play out and see what happens because you feel either trapped or desperate, but you're hopeless. I, I can't do anything to affect this at all. I've been there. I've gone through journeys with other people, and I can tell you, I do not like it. Uh, we've told this story many times, but it, but it was one that was shaping for me. And so years back when my wife had some experiences that she decided she would just bury until they could be buried no more, and they came out in a two-year-long depression. And she had to go through that. She had to go counseling, group sessions, all kinds of stuff. And she felt hopeless against the weight of all of those feelings and the stuff that she was up against. And it was the only thing we had in common at the time because I realized that nothing I said, nothing I did made any difference at all. And we just were together with this sense of hopelessness. Years later, experienced this with another son of mine who who had this emotional hopelessness where 
There was no motivation in his life for anything. And it's frustrating to have tried doctors and medications and threats and incentives. You name it, we threw it at the wall. And what we got was nothing. No motivation, no drive, no sense of anything. Just wanted to be in his room. Frustrating, because we felt helpless and hopeless, and we knew he had to feel it worse. A few years back, we had our oldest son uh, drop out of college with four, four classes left to get a degree. It was complicated. They had added classes at the last second and then spaced them so that he would have to go a whole nother year, and he was ticked. He's like, I'm not putting up with this anymore. I'm, I'm out of here. And uh, he, he dropped out and he got a job and soon we would lose contact with him. His phone would get shut off. And then he'd get turned back on and we'd catch up and try to figure out what was going on and then he'd get shut off again. And finally when we had a conversation, we realized that he was getting hit around by real life. He didn't have a college degree so he didn't find a job in his major. It wasn't a great paying job and now all of life's bills and all of his school debt had come due. And we discovered that at times, he wasn't eating just to find a way to get by. And when he kind of expressed all of that, there was a financial hopelessness that he just felt, I have dug such a big hole that there's no way I'm ever going to get out of it. And he didn't think his choices mattered anymore, oddly enough. When there's a big hole, your choices matter even more. But you had to still get past the sense of hopelessness before you would even try to make choices. Have you walked with somebody who's been there? Have you been there yourself? Imagine those feelings. That's what this woman had. She's in this temple court. She has all of these people pointing fingers of condemnation at her, and she did it. She's guilty. And the sense of hopelessness that she had was significant. But here's the thing. It's actually worse than it seems. You're like, how can this be worse? Her life is on the line. It is. See, um, John gives us a hint He gives us a hint in the previous verse that there was something that happened that would have been like a dagger driven into her heart and twisted. And the sense of hopelessness that you're experiencing, that you feel like at times, that you can, in spades for her. The only way for me to help you understand that is to take you into the text and to show you what's going on. So let me back up first and read verse 2 so I can show you where it kind of is revealed. Verse 2 says, At dawn he appeared, Jesus, he went back to the temple courts to be teaching again. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Do you see in here what's going to cause a problem for her? We don't because we're not from their culture, we're not from their time, and because of that, we sometimes read over really big things. The two words that would have driven a dagger into her heart are the two words, at dawn, at dawn. And the only way for me to do this 
is to take you back into the history a little bit and to paint a picture. But here's the thing. I'm going to have to move fast because there's a lot of stuff that happened during that time and all of it, all of it matters. So there's going to be little comments that I throw out and you're like, ah, that's just a throwaway. Nothing I'm putting in, because I don't have time, nothing I'm throwing in here is throwaway. It all ties into this bigger story that John's trying to tell. So we're going to go back and we're going to do that. I'm going to throw up a timeline so that you can follow along with us a little bit and so that you can get an idea of why at dawn was such a big deal for her, okay? So um, we're going to start by just understanding that the book of John was written uh, to reveal what Jesus was uh, fighting against. Over and over and over again, you're going to find Jesus challenging either systems or groups of people who had power in the book of John. And John was trying to reveal that Jesus was up against some stuff that he wanted to change. So it's not surprising that this story ends up in John. And so we see this kind of unfolding here. Now, we know the time frame that this was written in too. This was written in the seventh calendar month of, of the year. So this is about anywhere from late September 21st into early October. It moved because of the moon. It was a, a lunar calendar. And it would shift just to make it easy for us to track. We're going to say that the seventh month starts on October 1st. Okay, so on October 1st, they called that day Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the year or new year, which might make you scratch your head for just a second because it's the seventh month of the year. How can that possibly be? Well, the seventh month of the year was the new year for all of their religious festivals and traditions. All of those things kicked off then. And that day would have been like our New Year celebration. There would have been a lot of celebrating, but it quickly would have turned sober. Because after that early morning celebration, it would have turned into the next 10 days they called the 10 days of awe. In those 10 days, you set out to make things right between you and God. So you would identify the stuff that you had done wrong you would have ritual cleansings, you would have sacrifices, you would do a whole bunch of stuff in those 10 days to try and clean up all of the junk that you had done between you and God. You would examine what you had done between you and somebody else and you would try to make that right, you would try to make amends. And you were shooting to have all of that done on the 10th and final day of the Days of Awe, which was also Yom Kippur. It was the Day of Atonement. On that day, there was a massive celebration where everybody would come together, the priests would lay their hands on the head of a goat. And you would take all of that sin that people have been repented for, and you would put that on the head of the goat. That goat would be led out into the wilderness and left to die, taking your sins out of the city with it. This is the exact picture of what Jesus had come for. He had come to become that, that lamb that all the sin would be laid on, that your sin would be taken away into the wilderness and would be done with. So this picture is important. They believed that if you got all of that done, like if you fixed everything, by the end of the 10th day, your name would be written in the book of life for the next year. You were covered. You were good. But here's the thing. The Day of Atonement was about you and God making things right, but it didn't fix you and another person. 
And because of the distance and travel and all that kind of issues, sometimes it would take longer than 10 days for you to set things right. So they created wiggle room. There was some wiggle room. You had, you had a little bit extra time to do the stuff that you had to do to fix things between you and God and you and other people. And it happened to coincide with another festival that happened during the seventh month. On the 15th day of the seventh month, a festival called Sukkoth was celebrated. It was a festival of um, booths, the festival of tabernacles, all the same kind of names that they would have. And this festival celebrated three main things. There were three things that they would have been celebrating. One, they would have looked back into their past and they would have celebrated how they were freed. They would have gone and looked at Egypt and said, man, we're free. God provided freedom for us. They would look at their present and say, God provides for our present now. It would be like a Thanksgiving Day kind of thing where I look at all the stuff that God's provided for my life and I'm grateful for that. And then there would be a plea for their future. And specifically, they would plea that God would give them rain. By the way, from April to the end of Sukkoth was considered dry season. Don't throw that away. It's actually important. So they were in the dry season. It didn't rain during that time. And rain was life for these people. They stored it in cisterns. It took care of their drinking throughout the year. It took care of their animals. and was used for watering. It was life. And so they were pleading that God would prepare and provide for their future. All of that, all of that is happening and unfolding. Now, uh, in the celebration of Sukkoth, there was another thing that happened. From the Temple Mount each day, except for Sabbath, a group of priests would leave Temple Mount. And in the early days, they would go down to a, um, a river this had to be running water, water that came in and came out. They considered that living water, a running water kind of thing. They called it living water. Um, in Jesus' day, there was actually a pool. There was a pool that some water came in and they had a, uh, it go out, but everybody knew where this was going to be. And so you would gather around and you would watch the priests come down. They would fill up three jugs of water. They would go back to the temple, and as they entered the temple, horns would be blown. It would be a huge celebration. You would take your kids to this. You would say, watch this. I grew up watching this. This is a great thing. Let's go along with this. Then there's to be this big celebration. Normally they would pour wine over the altar, but not during Sukkot. They poured water because water was life. And they were pouring this living water over the altar, pleading for God to, to provide water in their future. Now on the last day of Sukkot, this is an important day because the rules changed. The priests just didn't go down to the pool. All of the people um, who were playing instruments would follow them. It'd be like a huge parade. You would have lined the streets to see this. So you have people blowing horns and instruments, people dancing. They're singing, and the last day was called Hosanna Rabbah. Hosanna, God save us, Rabbah, great. The great save day. This was the great day where you would celebrate the salvation of God. And so they would be pleading for this. People would be singing in the streets. They'd go all the way down playing music, all the way back playing music. This is, it's, it's crazy. And in the midst of this chaos, something unique happens. Okay, so so far we've got 
starts with celebration, then repentance, then the day of atonement where your sin's taken away, then Sukkoth where you're celebrating how God has provided in your past, freedom for you, provides in your present, provides in your future. And in the midst of this, John witnesses Jesus doing something that he writes down. He says this in John chapter 7, 37. So this is right before all of this stuff unfolds with this woman caught in adultery. Says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, which day is that? Hosanna Rabbah. We know what's going on. We know how this is unfolding. People are dancing. They've got jugs of water. There's all kinds of stuff is going crazy in the streets. Okay? Jesus stood, which is odd. Rabbi sat when they taught. They didn't stand, so he's trying to attract attention to himself. And said in a loud voice. Why? Why is he saying it in a loud voice? I think, I think one reason's obvious. I, there's a big party going on. People are celebrating, they're singing, they're dancing, there's horns going on. Jesus wants to catch their attention. But I think there's a less obvious reason that I think he stood and said this with a loud voice. There are people dancing in the street saying, God, save us. Hosanna, God, save us. And that's why he came. And it had to well up in his heart. That's why I'm here. If that's what you want, that's what I can offer you. And he had to be fired up and he stood up and he said this with a loud voice. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. you've been looking for the scandalous words, I just read them. Any Jewish person would have known that just what just came out of Jesus' mouth is a serious problem or indication of something great. See, there, the scriptures quickly record there's two groups. One of them looks at what Jesus just said and says, that guy's the Messiah, which means it worked. He's been trying to communicate that from the beginning of his ministry on, I'm the one sent from God to save you. I love you. I'm trying to offer myself for you. And some people picked it up. But there was another group, the scriptures record, that thought about grabbing him and killing him right there. But they knew they couldn't do it because the crowds liked him. But you know why they wanted to? Because Jesus just used the phrase, living water. And they knew that there were only a few references in the text about living water. And the first time it ever came up was in Jeremiah chapter 2. And God for himself claimed that he was living water. And so when Jesus used that phrase, he was either claiming to be God himself or to have such an intimate relationship with God that they were this close and they were enraged by this. But we can't kill him because lots of people are listening to him. Lots of people are following. Lots of people care about what he's teaching right now. So we have to come up with a different plan. And this is what they did. They decided to put him in a situation where if he didn't stand up with them, and back the traditions 
of the law, that people would turn away from him. And if he decided to join them and enforce the traditions and the law, then all this talk about him saving people and being living water would be a joke. So at dawn, on the last day, like the, the last day that you could have been put in the book of life is now gone. You know why she's desperate and hopeless? She's guilty and she knows it. But the second reason is there's nothing she can do about her guilt. There's no way for her to ever fix this. She's out of the book of life. She's about to die. And for eternity, she will be disconnected from God. And she knows it. They timed it just right. And they put this lady in front of Jesus. And they said, what are you going to do? I dare you to save her. I, I dare you to act on this desire that you have to be living water. Because if you do, you will have to reject our traditions and our law. And people will walk away from you. And if not, it's okay. You could join us too. Let's all go outside and we'll stone her. You stand next to me, Jesus, while we throw the stones. And all this talk of living water will go away. Oh yeah, that living water guy, he's got a good arm, right? He's one of us. He believes what we believe. He's standing right next to us doing this. They've set a beautiful trap. They had to be so proud of themselves. One problem. They did not understand who they were dealing with. Uh, we find Jesus saying about himself that the reason he even came in the first place was to seek and save the lost. So he's in his prime time when they bring this woman to him. He's ready for this. And here, I hate to do this, but I can't tell you how he gets out of it. It would honestly take a whole nother week for um, what he chooses to do to find a way to get them to leave. But here's what we know. In verse 10, Jesus has been on the ground writing some stuff. And then in verse 10, it says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Where are all these people who are here condemning you, who knew that you had to die? Where are they? And he goes on and he says, has no one condemned you? First words out of her mouth the whole time. No one, sir, she said. No one. First glimmer of hope this woman has had. She was dead. She was going to be separated from God forever. First glimmer of hope. And then Jesus finishes and says, Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now. Leave your life of sin. Question I have is why did John put that in the scriptures? Was it so uh, that we would be forced back to learn about festivals and religious holidays and all that sort of thing? No. This story is in the scriptures because it's a story about you. See, what would happen if we decided to bring you up on stage this morning and right next to you, we put somebody who had a list a list of all the things that you've done wrong. And they decided to read that off to everybody 
every selfish act you've done gets revealed. Every time you had envy in your heart, not just the envy, but what you thought about that other person gets said out loud. All of it brought out to the table. Every moment you decided to use anger or some other emotion to get your way or to hurt another person gets revealed. Every time you painted a smile on your face, but really what was, beside, what was inside your heart was a sense of judgment for who they were and what they were doing. And that, that gets revealed. Every moral failure that you've had, when you cheated, when you lied, when you took stuff that wasn't yours, all, all of that comes out. And you stand there exposed. And if you were like the woman in the story, you would quietly acknowledge that everything that was said about you was right. But there would be this thought in the back of your head that at least I'm not like her story because they're going to stone her and I'm not going to have that kind of outcome until you see what Paul says about this stuff that we do wrong. In Romans 6.23, it says this, For the wages of sin is death. Your story and her story are the same. She's facing death for what she chose to do. And it doesn't matter how long or short your list is. When you've decided to do things your way and not God's way, when you've decided... I, I had opportunities to love my neighbor like I love myself, and I didn't do it. I had opportunities to honor God, but I didn't do it. You're going to be faced with a list of stuff that will require your death. There's no other way around it. There was only one solution for this woman. See, they, they thought they had set a trap um, for Jesus, but her best best option was that she was actually pulled in front of Jesus that day because he was the only place where she could actually find hope for what she wanted. See, at dawn, in their minds, at dawn, they had her. She's going to die. She's going to be separated from God. All this stuff that they've been celebrating that whole week of that repentance that they've been doing, of the sin being carried out of the camp and not not on them anymore, being written in the book of life, celebrating how God had dealt with their future, celebrating how God had provided in their presence, pleading for God to give them a future. She was going to be cut off from all of that, and it's the same for you and me. That's what sin does to our story. It cuts us off from all of that stuff, and there was only one solution. Jesus stepped up and became the thing that she could hope in. I, I think it's fascinating. Technically, the rainy season started the day after Sukkot ended, when her life was going to lose everything. And what came to her was living water. And her story completely changed. 
she was going to be able to look back and say, God provided freedom from my past. God provided right then when I needed him. He is providing a life for me in the future. When he looks at me and says, go and sin no more. And the beauty of this is that could be your story too. Except something odd happens in our culture. Because we're fiercely independent, have the desire to fix things, when the indictment's read off, rarely would somebody in our culture sit in silence and let that go unanswered. We would say, oh, there was a reason I had to say that. You, you should excuse what I did here for this reason. You should ignore this. It's not that big of a deal. And, and we would just say, we would argue for ourselves. We would argue that it's not as bad as it seems. And in our culture, we would say stuff like this. I'll just do more good and outweigh the other stuff that I've done. I might have been guilty, but I can beat this. I can beat this. I can, I can do more. I can fix this. And you can't. You, you can try, and people have. You know, one of the weirdest attempts that I've seen so that you don't actually have to lean on God in any way, shape, or form in our culture is to just say there is no God. I don't have to fix anything. I've done, I don't, and, and you can blame other people for it too. They made me this way, right? We ignore our choice and we look at others and say, I, I'm going to accept that there is no God. I'm out of any of this guilt. I have none. Here's the problem. What happens for this woman is when she was finally finally met by Jesus, and he said, go and sin no more, he gave her a chance for a new kind of life. And I just want to tell you right now that if you step into all the junk in your life and you start excusing it, ignoring it, justifying it, you will end up with the same patterns, the same habits, the same kind of stuff that gets you in trouble over and over again because it's never removed from who you are. And it happens because we want to fix it ourselves. You know, I've, I've been close enough to it now, um, hopelessness, to say with some sense of energy that I have hated it when it's happened in my life. And that hate made me blind to something about it um, that was good. I can see that now. There's one value, there's one value in hopelessness that I've found. It actually causes you to stop thinking that you can actually fix or control things and it makes you look for the other person who can outside of you. And for many of us, we have not gotten to that place. We're still convinced that we're gonna fix this on our own. And we've not turned to the one person Jesus, who can take that sin away, who can repair our past, give us freedom from it, who can meet us in our present and actually give us a future. And because sometimes we're not hopeless enough, God has to wait. It's why 
It's why next week I want to continue down that vein. Because you um, kind of have set the stage for how God intends to meet you, to be the one where you find your hope in. But we have learned to give all kinds of excuses that get in the way of what he wants to do in our lives. And so next week, I'm going to talk about another story where that happens. And then we're going to put these two together, and I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to evaluate where you are with Jesus. This week, I just want you to ask this question. Have you been in a place of hopelessness that's caused you to turn towards Jesus yet? If not, you could be missing out on the only source. He is the only source you will ever find the kind of hope that you need to live this life. As I end, I want you to think about that, and I want to read as a benediction a verse that Paul wrote. For a church in Rome, these people were facing persecution. People were getting killed. Every other emperor went on a slaughter binge. But he wrote this to them. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How? As you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If this verse does not describe you full of joy and peace, it could, but where you place your hope will matter. So as you think about that, I want you to listen to this song, and then I hope you'll come back next week as we try to wrap this all together.